Thank you for joining us at Conversations to Inspire. I am your host, Teresa Moore. Our guest today is Ken Dombrowski. Ken is a master hypnotist and life coach, and he has been helping people through his practice called Love Your Life Hypnosis. This is part two of a three-part series. In this episode, Ken and I discuss his hypnosis practice and how he is helping clients with autism and grief counseling, how social media affects our attention spans, Ken's use of Reiki in his practice, as well as using hypnosis to help his clients overcome sexual abuse and other trauma. Here is part two. So when you take this recent, you know, conversation about being provocative and as well as us, you know, basically sabotaging your own program. See, when people are making progress and then they do something to fuck it up, they say, oh, I'm self-sabotaging. No, 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 no. The progress was the sabotage. The progress was the sabotage against your original program. Your original program is that you're not good enough. So you went outside of that, you tried to sabotage that program with success, started to see success, and then you went back to the originally you know, scheduled program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's, 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 it's the reverse of what people think. But, but when we take all this, I, I use this literally every day in my office, in my, in my sessions. I'll even tell clients, you might not like me during these, this program. You might not want to come back and see me. You're going to have some deeply moving stuff, and you're going to feel great when you walk out of here. Walk out of here on cloud, you know, have a, have a, a real good emotional flush or processing. And then a few days later, your brain's going to be like, mm, I don't want to go see that guy again because he makes me think too deep, feel too hard, too heavy. And it's also jeopardizing the original program. That's like the defense mechanism. Def- I don't want to go back because, yes, yeah. Yes, exactly. So, um, Expect. I tell people to expect that because I'm, I'm going to annoy you a little. I don't want to piss you off, but I have to a little bit. I have to be provocative. I have to do all these things. But I'm not doing it because I'm an arrogant dick or, or I'm a narcissist. I'm doing it because it's what's best for you, even if that means you hate me. But you have been through this enough with enough clients and patients that you have seen enough success that you know that it's going to work and you know these are the, the mechanisms you need to use in order to get to that success. Exactly. Well, you know, it's a, it might sound funny. Uh, uh, and when it comes to a matter of, of uh, sessions, I, I discovered, of course, many years ago, one session doesn't do anybody a bit of good. It's, it's a start, Right. So I've created this, I have an eight-session program, and it's once a week for eight weeks. It has to be weekly. I sometimes I get people say, well, I don't want to do it once a week. I want to do it once a month. I say, well, I, I can't help you then because it's, it's built on once a week because the, the way the human mind works, if we, if we wait monthly, when you come back to see me a month from now, we're starting all over again. Same thing every two weeks. Well, we might be starting, starting at 30 or 40%. No, no, let's start weekly. It's going to be weekly. You're building success on top of success before it can really backslide out of you. Yeah, build the layers before it can erode. Exactly, right. yes. That's a great way to put it. Uh, so it's weekly, 90-minute sessions, once a week for eight weeks. And you're going to have a point in there where you're not going to like me. You're not going to want to come see me. And you have to pay for the program in advance. There is no pay-as-you-go. I get people all the time, well, can I, can I make payments? No. Because you need that commitment I'm up front, saving correct? you from yourself. Mm-hmm. Because it, before I went to the prepay program, I had a lot of dropouts. Probably 50, 60% dropout. And it was usually around the third session. 
the third, fourth session is when I'd get that text. Oh, you know, I think I'm going to take a break for a while. And some people give me a variety. I get a variety of reasons. Oh, I'm feeling so much better that I don't think I need any more of those sessions. I try to explain to them right now. It's just temporary. You have to finish the program for sustainability. Nope, they've already made up their mind. Then I get the other type where it's like, you know, it's just too too heavy, too hard, and I just don't want to do that anymore. Oh, so they were honest. And some okay. people can be honest, yeah. And I understand that. It's mm-hmm. okay. But you have to finish or you're going to stay in this unfortunate place that you're at. Right. They've made up their mind. Now, every once in a while, someone will call me a couple of years later and say, I came to your program <laughs> two years ago and I you know, dropped out after two or three sessions and I've regretted it ever since. So I do get that from time to time, but definitely not enough, you know, that you'd like to see. But it really is, we all have to set up a, a program that we are going to build for, for, for success. And I want that to sound like your typical life coaching, well, set goals and you can build for success. I don't do that shit. <laughs> you have a good radio voice to be able to do so if you wanted to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so actually, I, 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 one thing I've, I've been told a lot is I have a you know, perfect voice for hypnosis. And, <laughs> yes, and you do. My children, uh, when they were, even when they were really small, I know, just talk to them. Okay. All right. We need to start. We need to start doing this around the house or doing that. And I'd watch my daughter start to yawn. Within five seconds, they're just yawning at me. What are you doing? It's ten o'clock in the morning. Oh, nothing, nothing. So yeah, I have a voice to put people to sleep. Perfect for hypnosis. <laughs> yeah. So when you are doing your practice, if someone has maybe a similar experience to your own, where it's traumatic, or if they come in and they don't have trauma that they've been dealing with. Either way, the brain and the way it works, your results and the way you can work with them, it yields the same end result, correct? It is a very powerful tool, but it's not like people think you get hypnotized once and you're going to quit smoking two packs a day, or you get hypnotized once and you're just going to drop 200 pounds and change all your... What I, what I do is always nothing but 100% therapeutic. Hypnosis is so simple, it's ridiculous. Uh, all I'm going to do is use my voice as the tool to get you to relax. And, of course, it's predetermined that you're going to do this because if you research a hypnotist, call a hypnotist, make an appointment with a hypnotist, and then show up to see that hypnotist, it's pretty well established that you want to be hypnotized today, right? So that's the purpose. Then we're going to have why, why, is, why are we hypnotizing? What are we trying to accomplish now? Well, we want to relaxation, you want uh, stress relief, or or maybe something bigger, depression, anxiety, things like that. Well, we've already talked about all what you want, what you need, we know where we're going. It's all, it's all predetermined. So now there's no surprises in that way. We're, we're going to just allow you to relax, feel your body decompress, close your eyes, listen to the sound of my voice, and you're going to zone in and out, and that's okay. You might feel like you're really deep, you might feel like you fell asleep, or you might sit there with your eyes closed thinking, I can hear every word this guy's saying, this isn't working. And even then, it's still hypnosis. There are just multiple levels, like thousands of levels you could possibly be in, right? So all you're going to do is relax and listen. See, when I get you to relax, your mind and body unilaterally at the same time, now your, your conscious mind is no longer in the way. And I'm able to talk directly to your subconscious mind. Now, the subconscious mind is where all your drivers are. All the drivers of your behavior, your thoughts, your feelings, your belief systems, 
All of that exists in your subconscious. None of it's in your conscious. So we have people running around all day trying to consciously change their life when it's a subconscious program. It just doesn't work. You know, you can't do it. So uh, uh, now that I'm talking directly to your subconscious with your permission, doing talking about the things that we've already predetermined that you want, want me to, to suggest to you, and I'm not giving you commands or demands, requirements, none of that. And they're all suggestions that you're choosing to listen to and absorb, to welcome them in, to feel them, to let them implant in. And when they come in, the old stuff kind of squeezes out. It's no longer needed. So that's what we're looking to do, replace one thing with another. And sometimes they're direct opposites, and other times they're not even related. It might be something that you want to get rid of, and we're going to replace it with something else entirely. And so it's, it's a wide open scope. I mean, like there's just literally millions of possibilities there. And after whatever, 20 or 30 minutes, you emerge out of it, feel like you refreshed and groggy, like you had a little nap, and ask you, like if you came to me for migraine headache, for example, take you out of hypnosis, but you have a migraine, and a person's going to sit there and they're going to look around, they look to the left, they look to the right, they're looking up, they're looking <laughs> okay. down, they're trying to find that headache, and then they start to wiggle their neck and they go, no, I don't. Don't have a migraine anymore. Why is that? Well, because the migraine was an emotional response to stress. It has nothing to do with needing to take a big horse pill that's going to kill the, you know, try to kill the pain. It's got to do with something that's unresolved. And because we took an opportunity to truly rest, mind, body, and spirit, all at the same time, it let go for a little while, whatever that was, which is what we call healing. We only truly heal when we're resting. And I like to say, that's why hospitals are filled with beds. You're going to go there and lay in a bed and stay there all day long and watch TV and rest. That heals the body, but it's doing nothing for the mind or the spirit necessarily, unless you intentionally make it, you know, apply to your mind and your spirit. So if you're in a hospital recovering from a surgery or whatever, and you actually meditate, oh, okay, great. Now you're, you're healing your mind, body, and spirit all at the same time. And you're going to heal faster and more effective. So when I have you in my office, well, you might not be healing from a surgery, but a person might have backache, headache, digestion issues, or whatever they might have. Fibromyalgia is a big one. We're going to get you out of that for a while. And the emotional reason that you have it is going to get a little bit closer to being resolved, which means it doesn't need to be heard from it. Well, the way we like to look at it is um, everything that we have going on emotionally, it wants to be heard from. It needs to be validated. It needs to be recognized, right, accepted and approved of, which is what we're all looking for as humans. So why would our emotions be any different? They're, they are part of us. So if we take something that from our past and we bury it away, we're telling it, you don't exist to me. So imagine if you did that to a child. You just cast a child aside and said, you don't exist to me. That child's going to act out. That child's going to want to be heard from, scream, cry, break stuff, do bad things. Same thing emotionally within us. The child within us is the one that needs to be healed. Always the child in us needs to be healed. So by doing that, we're acknowledging its pain. We're, we're reconciling it. We're letting it go. Now the physical pain goes with it. And you had said something earlier about having the mind quiet, your body quiet at the same time, and the power that that has for your body to be able to finally 
Yeah. Quiet down and slow the mind down and heal. Mm-hmm. And that was just the concept to me that I thought I, I never even linked the two before. I mean, I understand the mind-body-spirit connection, but to be able to have it slow down enough that you can finally let it heal. That's exactly what, what we're all needing. We're all living in such a chaotic world, work, life, family, um, everything that we're doing, and we're trying to live our best life. So we're adding more stress to the, to the pile by trying to do more, be more, more excitement in our life, go more places and things like that. And we're really getting further and further away from the natural mechanism that we need to truly rest so we can heal mind, body, spirit, and then we're better prepared to go back and do more stuff. Well, people say, oh, well, I sleep at night. Well, your body does, but your brain isn't. If you're not shutting down your brain, which most people have no idea what that even means, you're not truly resting at night. So my th- I have theories about a lot of stuff. I'm not saying I'm right, but hey, might be close. Uh, maybe 20 years ago was the first time I heard of this restless leg syndrome. Uh, I have friends who've had it. You know, clients of mine have had I it. I used to get it when I was extremely <clears throat> overtired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, like what you just said, overtired, not rested. Yes. So someone who has whatever unrest within them, um, because if you're overtired, it's a very emotional problem as well as physical. Right, absolutely. <clears throat> Can't think clearly, you know, everything is askew. Uh, so it's going to act itself out while you're sleeping and you start kicking your flailing your feet and legs around. Okay, well, that's kind of a barometer for how much stress and tension and anxiety we're all carrying around but not not doing anything about. So... If you go to bed, lay down, and you close your eyes and do an intentful meditation, or uh, what I like to do, I do this myself two or three times a week, um, I'll have um, earbuds in my ears and my cell phone just sitting on my chest listening to some hypnosis. might be mine or might be some hypnosis from somebody else, just any hypnosis that's you know, in alignment with my values, of course, and let that put me to sleep. So now, I, and then when I wake up in the morning, I wake up more refreshed, happier, um, you know, more energized, you know, just a better overall feeling of well-being. Even though, like, my body might be tired because I'm doing a lot. You know, maybe doing a lot of work or heavy-duty workouts or whatever might be, but I'm still in a great place. If I didn't shut down my brain before I went to bed last night, I would wake up groggy. I'd wake up tired physically, emotionally, mentally tired. I'd be dragging myself through the day, more coffee, more coffee, more coffee, all that kind of thing. So when you shut it down, you're now resting throughout the night. If you don't shut it down, your brain is, is going crazy all night, your spirit doesn't rest, and therefore your body really is not resting. I actually had, it was super interesting, to, at least, I guess, 10 years ago maybe. My, my wife... I'm a poor thing. I felt so bad for her. She, I snored like a son of a bitch. I, I, you know, that whole thing where you like the, the rattle the windows. I was resistant to getting a sleep study done for the longest time. But then I, I realized, you know, you know, I have to do something about this. So I, I went and did a sleep study. And it's so, wow, it was fascinating. Of course, you go to sleep at a clinic, which is uncomfortable. You're sleeping and people are watching you, which kind of odd yeah, but you have all these probes connected mm-hmm. to you so but you do eventually fall asleep and then they monitor you they, they tell you oh look you you woke you, you you stopped breathing you know 22 times a minute 
22 times a minute, you stop breathing, right? You know, 30 something times an hour, you know, you, you like, how wake is that up. possible? Yeah, right. It's like, <laughs> it's like they can just tell that you're, you're it's not just the flow of lungs, it just like stopped for a moment and then would keep going. And then, you know, the choking in the, the, on, the, on the air, that would happen 30 times an hour kind of thing, right? So you'd, you'd be never really got to sleep. They tell me you never really got to sleep. Well, I, I mean, I felt like I was asleep. It was dark in my head and uh, time passed and all this kind of thing. So now you really never actually got into a sleep, which is why you're exhausted, which is why you have you know, different issues, different problems. So that's really interesting to know. But now I'm thinking on that, if my body can prevent me from sleeping, even though I'm asleep, what about my brain? Oh, boy. So my brain can prevent me from sleeping, even though I think I'm actually getting a good night's sleep. So what do I do? I assure myself that I'm getting a good night's sleep by hypnosis before I go to bed. I don't want to do it every night. Every night, I think then it would wear out, and I don't want to do that. So I do it a couple, two, three times a, a week, maybe. Okay. I may have to see you for that. I'm one of those people that falls asleep with a lot in my mind, and then I wake up at 2 in the morning, boing, and, <laughs> and it, there's no hesitation. Immediately the mind is in full gear going 100 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, I was just asleep. How can they transition instantaneously? Yeah. And I'm like, probably because there was no transition. I was yeah. doing that all night yeah. long. There was no transition. You yeah. just went from eyes closed to eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was it. Yes. Good. I may have to have you help me with that problem. More than happy to, <laughs> definitely. So can you tell me about some of the, the people that you're able to help with your practice? Oh, well, that's a huge question. Uh, I would say pretty much everybody who, who has anything going on in their life that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, they're having a challenge with. And it always starts with a known outcome. So I don't want to, it's known, I, don't, I smoke too much, or I drink too much, or I eat too much, or, I'm, or I, I have all this depression. Like the physical presentation of something? Is that what you mean by the known yes, outcome? Yes, okay. that's, that's the outcome. Well, what's, we need to find what the problem, what the cause is. So we have cause and effect. That's the effect, what's the cause? So that can be, you know, I, I get people in my office with uh, bipolar disorder, um, borderline personality disorder, which is likened to people like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and Adolf Hitler, um, ADHD, ADD, autism, Tourette's, um, you know, so many different depression. things. Oh, depression and anxiety are just, they're normal. Anybody who calls me, I automatically assume you got depression and anxiety because it's just, it, it's an epidemic in our country. It, it just is. Uh, our world is filled with so much chaotic energy that people who never had anxiety in their life are now experiencing anxiety and they just don't know why. And there's, of course, we have to find out why for you. What is it for you? Now one of these life coaches is going to say, well, this is the reason and this is what, you know, why. No, no, no. We've got to find out your reason. You know, it's going to vary from person to person. When you have something really deeply pervasive like autism, for example, it appears to me the autistic mind works. It's just in this constant state of overwork and chaos. So uh, it's just too much happening in the mind for them to be able to sort through it, organize it, understand it. There's no system in place. It's just, you know, all over. Anyone who has uh, kids with, with autism, they're generally going to, you know, most people are going to agree, I assume, that then there's this meltdown moment where things didn't go the way that they wanted, expected, or they're embarrassed, or they, they feel bad about themselves. Then they might fall to the floor, cry, scream, you know, kick, hit. Things like that because they just don't know how to how to do it, how to how to handle that situation. 
So what I've been able to do with, um, like I say, a couple of dozen uh, or more uh, autistic kids to this point, and I'm working with a few even right now, um, is by calming down that mind using hypnosis. Give it an opportunity to rest. Even if it, with an autistic kid, you're only going to get five, maybe ten minutes of hypnosis. They, you, they just can't sit still much longer than that. And nor can the mind? Nor can their mind, yeah. Their mind is, it's, it is wired to go a million miles an hour. So to break that program and make them sit still and calm and close their eyes and whatnot, actually it's pretty interesting. What, I, what I've done many times is I'll have, a, you, know, the, the, you know, in the first or second session where I'm getting to know the, the kid, and uh, when the parent goes out to the waiting room and it's just me and the, the child, and then I get the child into hypnosis, I will then secretly text the mother waiting out in the lobby, you know, come into the office very quietly right now. And she comes in and sees her kid, who's usually bouncing off the walls, laid out in the, in the chair, eyes closed, you know, and just completely and totally sedate. And they're stunned. They, they don't, he doesn't sleep this way. When he sleeps, he's jumping and kicking and bouncing around. And how did you do that? That's just, it's all, it's all part of the program. You know, we, we're, 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 we're going to slow that brain down little bits at a time to where that can start becoming more than normal for that child. So now what we then notice is that I can work with a kid that's you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, and get you know, a lot of behavioral improvement you know, to where they can go back into regular school, regular classes even. Unfortunately, after puberty, when the kid becomes 15, 16, 17 years old, these boys, their testosterone and uh, aggravation and aggression is just, it's, beyond their control. So then once again, they start having these aggression issues. And it might be fighting as well as uh, sexual aggression. So they're going to have these problems. And once again, they get kicked out of school. So it's common for me to get a phone call a few years later. Hey, remember us? You treated our kid? Well, I'm usually going to have to see an autistic kid once a week for a year. Okay. Um, then I'll get a phone call a few years later. So yeah, I'd love to see him. Bring him back. It's going to take give us another year, and uh, hopefully we, we he should be able to go on and you know without this being a problem. And that's usually the case. Actually, I can't say that it's never not been the case. Um, the only ones that are that I find that I would say are are unsuccessful are the the, the kids that they they uh, in the initial meeting, the initial uh, consultation and assessment. Um, they just couldn't even perceive that I'm here to help. You know, they, they just view me as a threat or something new that they just cannot even get the idea of talking to me or, or being part of, you know, this program. And that's always very sad because um, I would love to be able to, to help. That's all I'm here to do. But it, uh, you know, I, I always have to remember I can't be everything to everybody. No, absolutely. Yeah. And if they are not, I don't want to say not willing because they're not cognizant of the fact that they're not willing, but if they are unable to allow you to help, you can't help. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it sounds like the progress that you're able to make with these autistic children is remarkable. And, and no, I understand that over time, um, maybe, is there something that you can... Do you set up, maybe that's a better way to put it, do you set up a program where if you bring them through a year worth of uh, meetings with you, and then after that, do they come back like once a month for maintenance just to kind of help keep that brain and that uh, 
and the state of where you brought it to? I do tell that to every family, uh, whether it's autistic or, or anyone. But when it comes to like autistic, uh, uh, of course, that's the conversation we're on now, is that there's so much pain with it, with, with the child having autism. And I hope I'm not you know, upsetting or stepping on any toes of anybody listening. Uh, there's a lot of pain involved with it because it's, it's so difficult and challenging emotionally, physically, spiritually, not just on the child, but on the family. The family is really, you know, who's, who's footing the, the emotional bill here. I always can sense when I have that conversation when a kid has, you know, no I'm going to say, hey, he doesn't need me anymore. Not for now anyway. Maybe in a few years. Or he's 18, 19 years old. He's not going to need me anymore. But if he does, I'm here. And what I'd like to suggest once a month, once every six months, once a year, something, as a maintenance program going on. And everybody says, yeah, 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 but no one ever does it. They wait until there's a problem, then they call me. And that's, you know, preventive. That's human nature, probably. It, exactly. Right? It's preventative. Preventative maintenance is, all, is hard for any human. Why am I going to fix something that's not broken yet? And at, at the same time, there's all the emotional turmoil that we had to go through. We want to put it behind us. And how, we can't put it behind us if we keep going to see Ken, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even though he helped us resolve all these things, it's still a reminder of how bad it used to be. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of even the uh, uh, the peril of being a life coach. People are going to come in, they're going to confess the sins of the world, and they can have a great program, and we bond, and you know we have this spiritual connection. And uh, they tell me, oh, I'm going to keep in touch, I'm going to keep in touch. I, I want everyone to keep, I'm your life coach for life once you come through my program. Um, but my phone does not ring off the hook with people needing me because they've graduated, they can handle things on their own. But there's also, to me, there's the other side of it. There's that embarrassment factor. Yeah, and I, I could see that because they have, if they come back to you, does that mean that you didn't do your job? Does that mean that they didn't do the maintenance, that they didn't keep up with it? Probably more so on their own shoulders than that they feel that they failed you and that they don't want to come back. There, and that as well. And, and, and I also look at it like, you know everything about me. And that's mm. uncomfortable. So it makes it difficult for, for people to, to, to want to go back to that. But, you know, people who do, who, you know, years later, it, and that can be a hump. You know, might take, well, let's say, for example, five years later, someone will call me and say, oh, hey, yeah, five years ago, I did great, I loved it, everything was good, I was, my life's been terrific. So, okay, great, well, well, then why are you calling me today? Oh, well, my mom died, and I'm really struggling. It's really hard. Um, it was terrible, battle with cancer. I was there every day, and I, and I just can't seem to, you know, it's really it's a real problem. So I was hoping you could help. Yep, absolutely. Come on in. You know, so that's that's really the only time I'm going to need to, you know, any any client calls me back later is if they have some kind of a, a real life trauma or tragedy that they're having challenge, you know, dealing with, or they they know because I teach this. You can ha- now that you've graduated this program, you can handle this stuff easier on your own. But also, if you want to get through it even quicker. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. So if someone has the time, the willing, the willness, the, the money, the, the ability and all that, then they might want to come back and compress it. Like, in, like when I do grief counseling, um, when we look at, uh, you know, through, through psychology, uh, research and studies that uh, grief counseling, uh, it, it takes on average a minimum five years to properly mourn the loss of a loved one. Five years. Mm-hmm. And that's if someone's healthy-minded. 
That's if someone is healthy with their emotions. Uh, more a, uh, average is going to be closer to 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Otherwise. Yeah, I did not realize that. So you, if, you've ever, if you've lost anyone, you can probably think back, well, you know, it, yeah, for, for the first year, obviously, you felt it daily. Then the second year, not so, you know, maybe a couple times a week, and it fades out. By the time you got to five years, you were still feeling it, you know, still triggers. You can even feel triggers up to 10 years later. But they're just not as heavy or not as obvious. They're not as painful. They just kind of breeze on through, but still noticeable. Well, when you do a program that's geared towards grief relief, uh, we can compress like five to 10 years of grief into maybe six months. That's going to be way more than an eight-week program for sure. But if you can do, say, six months, you're going to really compress that. And, And here's the thing, and this is really hard for people to hear, but I'm always going to be honest. I don't sugarcoat anything. I don't, I'm never going to bring someone in under false pretenses or expectations. If you could imagine, if you could quantify the amount of pain you'd feel uh, over a 10-year period, of course, in the, initially it's very heavy, then it kind of cascades downward uh, towards that 10-year mark. But if you quantified it, say there's a, let's just say there's a million pain credits, whatever that might mean, right? <laughs> Sounds like Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, a million credits of pain that you're going to spread out over 10 years, which makes it a little more palatable, a little more, a little easier because it's kind of as you go. Or we're going to compress a million pain credits into six months. You're going to really feel it in that six months, but at the end of that six months, you're going to be free from it pretty well, right? You're going to be pretty well on your way after that. Actually, I did have one, one woman, uh, I, I have... Ex- stories and examples for days, but one that's coming to mind right now, and it's just very obvious, a woman that was probably about 74, 75 years old. And she came to me uh, because she was very sad and drinking a lot of a bottle of wine every night to cope with with her sadness. Because like four years earlier, her her husband had died and they were together since they were teenagers. So she's, you know, very sad, not you know doesn't want to do anything around the house barely taking take care of herself uh all this kind of thing she wanted to know know, what i could do to help so i tell her i have this program and because i she told me up front she says i "I don't have a whole lot of money but but i but i do want to do something because i don't want to live like this okay put her in this program and after eight weeks she made an unbelievable turnaround and it was the funniest part. I think the reason I remember this lady so well is because here's this sweet little old gal, 74 years old or 75, and she literally was yelling at me. In the, I think it was her second or third session. She yelled at me. She said, for the last few years, I was able to manage my life without thinking about him. And I was able to, do, and I was able to get through my day, and then I come to you. And now I'm thinking about him all day, all night. I was crying in the shower, crying, wake up in the middle of the night and cry, and that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I tried to not, you know, I did, oh, I, sweet. it was, a, you know, I, I actually wanted to laugh because not that she, that she, what she's saying is laughable or funny, it's just that. It's the reason it, it's, it's a laughing situation for me is that it proves that this is working. Uh-huh, because there you did. You consolidated all that mm-hmm. grief and brought it out right there in that moment. Exactly. Yeah. So then after I explained that to her in more in-depth and we did a few more exercises and probably neuro-linguistic programming, some visualizations and, uh, and then hypnosis, um, wow, by the end of the sessions, the eight sessions, she was in a completely different place. Very different. 
And that is such a great story because then you can see the, the success as well as even her willingness to allow you to help her, mm-hmm. even just to come there and to ask for help. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I, I really like working with senior citizens uh, because they're of a different generation. Uh, they have a resiliency that is fading, is, is, is exiting our world. Yes. And, and, yes. and I don't, this cannot, I do not want this to sound demeaning and disrespectful in any way, shape, or form, but they, all, they had a much simpler mindset. Right, they grew up in an age without television, without 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 technology. technology. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time they were you know teenagers, maybe they had a television and a telephone in the house. Right, so you know the the that's very simple mind, one thing at a time kind of a mentality. Well, they're actually that actually makes them very easy to make turnaround because they don't have a whole lot of other stuff in there clogging the works, right? Okay. So they don't have as, mu- as much chaos and, and uh, white noise going on as someone like right now as a teenager. Mm-hmm. A teenager's head is filled with nothing but white noise and chaos and, and just going a million miles in a minute and they don't even know why. Mm-hmm. Able to focus was amazing back then. These, so that, in the older generations, they still have that ability to focus so deeply and you can see it and when I, you're working. And right I can now. use that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, uh, and then they're so funny when I talk about focus. And uh, um, the, the, in psychology, there used, it used to be kind of a, this joke that I'd heard a couple times I thought was always very amusing. Uh, the attention span of the average American is dwindling. Mm-hmm. I've heard that as well. So, again, 100 years ago, attention span, you could have an attention span locked in for 10 hours and not, not drift from it. What you're doing, this is it. And then, of course, with radio, TV, getting a newspaper every day instead of once a month, all this kind of stuff, you know, so you know, then it kept on falling. So we're talking 20, 30 years ago, like maybe in the 90s, they said it had fallen to only about an hour, hour and a half or 90 minutes or something like that was the attention span. And then they made a joke that the, the, uh, the goldfish is 10 seconds. So... It was a joke that, you know, anybody whose attention span is, is dwindling, they're becoming a goldfish. Well, recent studies have shown that uh, the average American attention span is now down to six seconds. Oh, my goodness. So now we're... Less than a goldfish. We're actually being out, outplayed by the goldfish. <laughs> and that's really important distinction. So I, I love that my iPhone tells me how much screen time I've had this week. Anybody who you might not have that, that's a great thing to have on. So you can tell what you're doing with your time. Now, me personally, I don't use my cell phone for any social media. It's all just for business. You know, I look at my emails, my calendar. There's n- really nothing entertainment that I look on my phone for, except for maybe some shopping. But my wife, <laughs> I love you, honey. Uh, she is on Facebook 29 times a day. And... When I started talking to her about this in, in, the, in the last you know, year or so, it's really important to try to you know, put that down. Nothing's going to happen in the next 11 minutes that you've got to get back. How about you put it down, don't look at it until you get home at night? Or maybe first thing in the morning before you go to work, look at Facebook. Leave it, leave it alone all day long and then look at it in the evening, maybe uh, after dinner. And then you can be on it for an hour if you want. But see how that feels. And she actually you know, reluctantly or begrudgingly, it's admitted that, you know, she, her, her mind doesn't feel as, as clogged and confused. 
Mm-hmm. I'm and, sure less anxious too. And less anxious, yeah. 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 Um, and I've, so I, I've over the years I've also just obviously used this with my clients, mm-hmm. uh, and and. I, I always am at risk of sounding sexist, so please forgive me. I never want to sound that way. But when you, a lot of times you talk to especially younger women, teenage years through their 30s, they're on their phone nonstop. They're on, uh, if they're, right now, if they're around 30-ish, they're, they're on all of it. They're on Facebook still because that's what they grew up with. And they're on the Instagram and the, the uh, uh, Snapchat and all these, TikTok, that's the other big one. They're on all of these. But then the people that are younger than that, like 25 and younger, they're mostly going to be just about the TikTok and the Snapchat. <clears throat> so you can even look at it like right now, a, a, a 17, 18-year-old uh, is going to have, um, is going to be more responsible about their phone usage than a 30-year-old woman would be. I can see that because my kids do not do social media. Then none of them are on Facebook. <laughs> none of them are on Instagram. They do Snapchat because that is the way they text, but they're not on TikTok. So I'm blessed and fortunate that way that I don't have to deal with all of those outside influences. But I can see that because the younger kids they use it for texting, and they they don't have the pull of so many different phone usages mm-hmm. during a day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. It's good observation. I like that you're doing that with your kids. That I don't know. They, that was their, of their own choosing. Yeah. Well, uh, just that you recognize it. That's, oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Well, that is. That's really great that we don't have the the phone battle of having to you know put your phone down. It's it's not an issue. Well, for a few years, I had uh, the the Facebook app on my my iPhone and uh, what's the one the Messenger mm-hmm. on my iPhone, <clears throat> and holy cow, it was like every minute I was getting a notification of some type through Facebook or Messenger. So you get a notification, you're going to look. And they're all about those dopamine hits, man. Oh, gosh, yeah. The algorithms and the studies, absolutely. Exactly. And then after a while, first thing I did was I eliminated the Messenger. But then I still kept on getting all these hits from Facebook. So I I took the Facebook app off. Mm -hmm. So if I want to go on Facebook, which I only go on once a week, I have to actually log on. You know, through through uh, Google Chrome and and then go into Facebook that way. Excellent. Big difference between doing all that and just tapping one button. Yes, and having the alerts on your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't been on Facebook in about four years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, nice nice not to have that constant barragement of um, notifications and mm-hmm. alerts. Yeah, it mm-hmm. changes how your brain works and the focus you can have. Definitely does. And you would know that too, especially in your practice. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. definitely. Could you do me a favor, Ken? Can you walk through all of the certifications that you have? Um, I know they're listed on your website, mm-hmm. um, like the Reiki, the Dream Sculpting. Um, can you go through each of those briefly for us? Oh, sure, sure. Reiki energy healing. Um, what that is is the channeling of the energies of the universe from one spirit to another. So, uh, and it has to be done in my mind the way I look. It has to be done from from one spirit to another because there has to be a catalyst. Someone is forcing it through to another. Uh, when a person has the, a, a bottleneck or a bog down or a, or a blockage in the channeling of their own energy through their body, uh, it's going to manifest in different ways of, of uh, physical pain, disease, uh, or, uh, or even mental disorders, uh, behavior, emotional disorders, things like this. So it gets stuck. So that means that they're not capable of making it flow themselves. So that's where Reiki comes, for, comes in. And the most traditional way is I'm going to hover my hands around a person. And uh, my hands might be just a few inches away. So like I say, for example, someone has a headache. 
I might hover my hands around the top of the head, the sides of the head, the forehead, and the back of the head, and kind of just channeling my energy. And, and I literally visualize um, a powerful energy of, of light pouring down from the, the universe into the top of my head, through my body, and then down my arms and through my hands. And what ends up happening is everyone I've ever done Reiki on, when, you know, where, where I'm hovering my hands, everybody says the same thing. I can feel it. I don't know what I'm feeling, but I'm feeling something. I'm feel, it feels warm, but not warm. It feels, feels like maybe uh, a, some kind of stimulation is going on. So you hear this every, almost every time, I would say. And it tells you that, it, that we're really doing something. So you feel that flow, and then my flow, me pumping that energy in and through that area stimulates your flow. So now the blockage is getting relief. That doesn't mean that the blockage is going to go away instantly, but it might help stimulate its own, its own flow after I'm done and keep, it, keep going because it's been given a reason to. So that'd be uh, Reiki. Um, I'm, I'm officially a Reiki 1 and 2, but I have so much study and, and practice at it, I'm, I would guess I'm a master, but I don't know. We'll go with that, Reiki master. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like to think there's always something more to learn. Uh, trauma relief specialist. Oh, yeah, this is big stuff, trauma relief. Um, when, we, when we look at, uh, everyone has traumas. I don't care who you are, what you've got going on. Trauma is, is every, everyone has it. Even the person who has had this unbelievably coddled life, so well protected uh, in every way, shape, and form, and you can never, there's no, there's nothing you can really put your finger on as far as trauma, like a car accident or the, a trip and fall or a, you know, some kind of an injury or what have you. But in them, the trauma is going to be sneaky. It's going to be something that you never would suspect. We want to think about uh, that kind of trauma as when, well, expectation plays a lot in our life, in our mind. When we are expecting life to go in a certain way subconsciously, you don't even have to be thinking about it consciously. There's just an expect, expect that like you're driving your car at night. There's no lights on the road, so the road is dark except for your headlights are leading you. And they're showing you every 200 feet is okay. So you're ex you get this natural expectation that it's going to be okay. Then suddenly there's an obstruction in the road. So that's a that, that can be a traumatic experience because it was a, an, an instant disruption to that expectation Something of flow. Something so simple. Something so simple. And now it could even just be a couple of some leaves that you plow right through with no problem. Or it could be a big-ass deer that destroys your car and comes through your window and causes injury. It can be any type of thing. So when you think about expectation that gets disrupted, take a child who's ordinarily... You know, well cared for, looked out for, looked after, coddled, nurtured, everything. And that child has an expectation. Oh, mommy, mommy, I'm hungry. Can I have lunch now? And mommy says, oh, not now. It's not time yet. That could be a trauma for that child because he or she was thoroughly expecting at the core of their being that lunch was going to be ready, you know, at this point because that's just what they're expecting. Now, they might, might not cry or get upset or hurt or sad in that moment, but what it can do is in the subconscious mind become a trauma, and now I don't trust my mom because I, she was supposed to have lunch, but she didn't. And Now, these are not things they're thinking about consciously. Mm -hmm. It's a lesson learned in the subconscious. 
So we have these people who have been amazing parents that don't understand why does my kid not like me? Why is my kid not, and why is my kid not warm to me? They're, they're warm to their mother or their father, but not me, and I don't know why. And it can be the most unbelievably simple thing. So trauma relief is all about finding whatever that trauma, no matter how big or small or quantifiable, and then providing relief through visualizations, through neurolinguistic programming, through hypnosis, through working it out in a, in a multitude of different ways. That's fascinating because I always assume that trauma is a traumatic experience. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. and that's what that's what we're always looking for. But then it's funny when actually I have a quick story mm-hmm. I'll share with you. I like to use this one. Several years ago, a friend of mine he told me he says, "Well, my my daughter, uh, fourteen years old, which I knew his daughter, um, we were all friends, a uh, nice girl, fourteen years old, and she has never had a friend in her life. Sweet girl." I adored her, thought she was great, great personality, easy to talk to, really just a great kid. A little shy, but sweetheart. He says she's never had a friend. She's never had a sleepover at another friend's house. She's never had a friend come over. She never talks about a friend coming over, a friend from school. Never. She goes to school, she comes home, that's it. So we're kind of worried. Yeah. Is there something you think? I said, sure. Have her come on into my office, make this like an official session for her. So I bring her into my office, and it didn't take long uh, to find this trauma. Because um, she was actually just a very spiritual you know, girl, so she was able to get in touch with it really quickly. She comes up with a memory of playing on the playground when she was about seven years old. They're um, playing tag, her and some other children, and one kid, one boy, when he tagged her, he kind of pushed her, and she fell down and started crying. And the boy just ran away, get playing the game. And I said, oh, you were crying. She says, yeah, I was crying and crying and crying. I said, okay, well, what happened when you fell down? Like, did you scrape your knees or something? She says, no. Well, when you landed, did you, did you put your hands out in front of you and maybe scrape your hands? She said, no, no. Were you hurt? No, it wasn't hurt at all. I said, well, well, then why were you crying? And she just thought about it. She had to think about it for a moment and do some soul searching. She goes, I was crying because he pushed me to the ground and left and that nobody came to help me up. That was the most traumatic experience of this girl's life. So what it did was it taught her to not trust children. Like I said, I would see her at barbecues and whatnot have you, and she was a sweetheart of a kid, easy to talk to for adults, but she did not trust kids. Okay, the very, get done with that, have a little session with her, we processed some stuff, and she went on. Was, she, was, I mean, she was no problem, great after that. The very next appointment session I had after she left my office was a, was a woman. Now, this woman, when she had called me initially, was to, to talk about quitting smoking. And when I was talking to her, her voice was so deep and gravelly that her voice, and then she says, oh, and I want to tell you I'm a woman, just so you know. I said, oh, I'm really? Okay. Um, she says, I know my voice is really gravelly and deep, but it's because of a lifetime of smoking. That's, okay. you know, that's why my voice sounds this way. If I, I really, I did not, I thought it was, I assumed it was a man. Okay. So she comes in for this first session after that phone call. She walks in and, and she's about 50 years old and an attractive woman, other than what she's showing you. She's showing you a woman with uh, uh, greasy hair pulled back into a ponytail, no makeup, uh, big glasses on, 
She dressed like a man. So she had a voice of a man, dressed like a man with big flannel shirt that was big and baggy and, and big baggy pants and a big pair of work boots kind of thing. So she, she sits down and we're talking. And she, the whole time I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? Why does this woman want to put off the, the put out to the world that she's a, she must be, that she's a man? Yeah. Where is this masculine energy coming from? So uh, then she mentioned something about um, being sexually abused as a child. And so I said, well, so what ended up happening for this woman was when, if I'm trying to remember it right, somewhere around age five to age 14, about 10, 10 years, she was being sexually abused by six men in her family. Uh, and I'm trying to remember everyone, but her father was not. He was too much of a drunk, she said, that her mother complained that he could never you know, have sex with her even because he's always drunk. Um, but it was her grandfather, two uncles, two cousins, and an older brother, I think, something like this. God, that's awful. Yeah, six, six men. So well, you think you dive into that for a moment. Okay, okay, that's all family. So what would happen like at a family get-together? 4th of July barbecue, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas. She'd go, oh, yeah, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas. I'd have sex three, four, five times that day. As you know, during those years, and it would always be the same. Oh, come on, hey, come over here. Just want to show you something. Let's go. Let's go take a look at something in the basement. Have sex really quick. Be back at the party ten minutes later, and you know they'd give her like a dollar or five bucks, depending on how old she was, or give her some candy, or some kind of a little gift. And this is our little secret. And for to her, this was normal. It wasn't violent. It was all. She was convinced that this was how we show love. So then as she got older, 14 years old, she decided she didn't want to do this anymore. So she ran away from home. <clears throat> so now we fast forward to this 50-year-old woman with these experiences, and it's very easy to see, you know, at least for, for me as a behaviorist, that uh, she's making herself to look and sound like a man so no one would want to have, you know, rape her or sexually abuse her anymore. And as soon as I said that to her, she started to cry. She says, I haven't cried in 20 years. But that makes sense. That that makes all the sense in the world. Right. And then next thing was, by the end of the session, that, that first session, she went from this really harsh, rough, gravelly voice to a very a deep but sultry woman's voice. You know, and I kind of liken it, if you may, might remember uh, Suzanne Plachette uh, from back in the 70s and 80s, a beautiful brunette actress. She was on the Bob Newhart show. And she had that kind of deep, sultry voice. That's what this woman had by the end of the session. It physically changed. It physically changed. I said, can you hear yourself? And she's, she says, well, what do you mean? She goes, oh, my God. <laughs> when oh she said, what goodness. do you mean? And she heard herself finally. And she says, oh. She goes, what's going on? So, well, your, your brain, your mind is, is, wants you to sound like a man. So, again, that's contributing towards, please don't sexually abuse me because you're just sexually abusing a man or whatever. So went through the sessions, you know, went through a program. And it was so, so exciting to see um, that week after week, this woman was abandoning the, the male wardrobe and coming in dressed more like a woman each week. Um, you know, more you know, tight-fitting clothes, more feminine, more female. He, he even ended up wearing high heels well, for the first time in her entire life, wearing makeup. Oh she never goodness. even she never owned never even owned makeup before. And this is just in a matter of weeks. Matter of weeks, and, and styling her hair, and uh, and the, the, the she kept that, that nice kind of a deep sultry woman voice that was very obvious. She was a woman. Yes. 
Yeah, it was and that's a different. huge turnaround from a lifetime habit mm-hmm. of protection and then to within a few weeks of identifying it with your help mm-hmm. and then to be able to heal beyond the trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is it's actually almost hard to comprehend, the, the, the speed and the, the depth of that. Well, when we can you know, find those traumas and face them, you know, it really is the key. It, it opens it up. Yes, there are some people that have a hard time finding the trauma. It might take multiple sessions just to find it. Other people, they find it, but they're still, they're, they have so many protective mechanisms that they're, they, they're very slow progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a wide open range of you know, what it's going to take to get someone somewhere. For you and for them. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. The power behind that is just, that is truly remarkable, Ken. Well, thanks. I, you know, I just I love what I do. And, and I can tell. something that I say you know, very often, and, and I don't ever want this to sound cheap or, 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 uh, or you know, like it's just a program, what I say, I'm thoroughly grateful to everyone who allows me part of, to be part of their journey. That, that really is important to me. I mean, I, I wear that as a badge of honor, that, that you chose me to become part of your life story. And, and uh, you know, grateful, oh gosh, grateful on steroids. That's how I feel about it. But that kind of goes back to your whole philosophy of love, gra- gratitude, forgiveness, and mm-hmm. apology, just incorporating that into your very essence. And then it, it just emanates from you because you're willing to help so many people. And people, we were talking about your large energy before, you just how it emanates from you and it can fill a room. And that, that is part of that energy. It's a positive, strong, and enveloping energy. Oh, thank you for noticing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, next on the list here, we have life coaching. Um, Well, life coaching, what I like to look at it is it's that's the category that that holds everything, the umbrella that holds everything under it. Um, It it, it started out years ago uh, with a lot of people doing life coaching, and it was a it was different than it is now. It was more about telling you what to do and how to live your life. You can do it. Positive affirmations and all kinds of ridiculous shit like that that just doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you, I, I like to think about reminisce. Uh, you know, you and I are similar age, so maybe maybe this this you might this might be familiar to you. Back in the '80s, all around America, there were these workshops that would pop up like. They'd do some advertising and, you know, this week at the, you know, Hilton hotel room, you know, ballroom, we're going to have this seminar and it's an aggressiveness training seminar. And they'd teach people to be aggressive and stand up for yourself and, and, you know, put yourself out there and be, you know, really, you know, uh, uh, stand up for, for who you are and what you want. So people, this, these things were successful. People were clinging. You do. Uh Okay. Uh People were going to these things like you know, they were filling these ballrooms and, and, and uh, whatnot with these things, and they were they were very effective. They got a lot of people divorced and fired. <laughs> very effective. Very indeed. overly effective. So then in the nineties, you know, ish, you know, God, there was like a translation period there where then they became assertiveness training instead of aggressive. So Maybe from, that's the one I remember. Okay. So I went from aggressive to assertive. So assertive was still, still all about me, 
basically being a selfish person, uh, trying to get everything for me that I deserve and want and, you know, through greed and whatever. But it was just a little bit softer. (laughs) (laughs) Toned down just a notch. Toned down a bit. (laughs) And then from there, uh, of course, we had uh, the the incredible, you know, uh, Tony Robbins, who Mm -hmm. pioneered the entire self-help industry Mm -hmm. back in the 80s. And, um, you know, he he has uh, touched millions of people's lives. Millions, yes. And I definitely appreciate him for that. Um, but he, he, you can watch the evolution of his career in the beginning, back in the eighties, it was a lot of fluff and positivity and stuff that was, you know, it just didn't last. It felt good in the moment, but it peters out. It doesn't last. And so he even says, if you watch some of his seminars and things like, you know, they'll have documentaries about or whatever, he'll tell you from time to time, well, I used to do this, but I found out I was wrong. That's what I really appreciate about Tony. Is that he can wow, say that vulnerability that, and that yeah. honesty? He said, "I'm always in a pursuit for what's best," and I was con- like, he was convinced being vegan for the longest time was the only way to go, and then he found out that that he was wrong. That that didn't, you know, wasn't the healthiest thing for him right. and people. So he, you know, made that correction. And other things. So um, life coaching, you still see from time to time, you know, someone who wants to just be a drill sergeant. You can go online life coaching, I'll make sure, I'll hold you accountable. Right. Listen, I don't need to be accountable. I need to know where my problems are and how to overcome them so I can then hold myself accountable, right? Like me and myself, for example, as we've discussed, I've, I've lived my life with a multitude of autoimmune and metabolic diseases, still have today. I just don't, I just don't suffer from them. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them are actually, some of them don't show up in med, in blood work anymore. Some of them still do. As long as I'm, I take care of myself, you know, there's very little problems. But when, when you, when you look at how, you know, you, you just handle your life and you're coaching yourself, your own life, you know, that's what makes the difference. So if I can teach you to be your own life coach, like I kind of taught myself, you don't need accountability. You are accountability. See, I don't, I don't, I kind of look at things a little bit differently than most people. Um, I don't need love in my life. I am love. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't need acceptability. I don't need to be accepted. I don't need to be approved. I am acceptance. I am approval. I don't need gratitude. I am made of gratitude. So I don't need it. All these, you look at these things. fantastic. Does that go back to the chart that you had on your wall, Mm -hmm. on your whiteboard? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're living it, you don't need it anymore. And you don't need to seek it, and you don't need it from other people. Exactly. Mm. So if I can turn you into that kind of a life, you know, your own life coach, if I can life coach you into life coaching yourself, mm-hmm. you don't need me, and you're just going and doing what you want and need to do with your life. And that's, that's my aspiration for everyone who comes into my office. This is Conversations to Inspire with your host, Teresa Moore. Join us again next Monday for Part 3 with Ken Dombrowski as we wrap up this conversation. Help promote this show by subscribing and following this podcast and leave a five-star review so we can continue to get incredible guests as we dive further into the mind-body-spirit connection.